Canada is the quintessential transatlantic country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are and will continue to be central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrifice blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the Macdonald Laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this episode, I talk with Professor Alex Moens, who is the chair of political science department at Simon Fraser University, the founder of NATO Field School and Simulation Program, and one of the leading scholars of NATO in Canada. We talked about NATO new strategy concept, the history of that policy document, why it matters, what can we expect to see in the update to the strategic concept, and whether Canada should play a more active role in shaping that framework. Please enjoy this episode with Alex Moens. Welcome, Alex, to Across the Pond. Thank you for joining us today. Before we jump into discussing today's topic, the new strategic concept and the future of NATO, why don't you give us a bit of background in terms of your research interests and how you come to be interested in NATO and become one of the most prominent scholars of NATO here in Canada? It's been a long journey, some 31 years. Back in the late 80s, I was both a NATO fellow and shortly thereafter, a European still economic community fellow, looking at the transatlantic relationship. The scenario in Western Europe where I grew up was such that the Atlantic Alliance was really the prime thing in the 1960s. What is now the European Union was even much less visible than the Alliance. And United States was the great superpower, both powerful and admired. And it was easy for me to look at the big questions of power and values and purpose and to find them in this beautifully crafted 1949 treaty and to see the logic, the enduring logic of the transatlantic bond and the ability to bring Europe back after World War II. So it was, for me, the most important political science project in the world. What you suggested is, is I think, very important. I would like to get to the strategic concept in a minute, but I want to pick up one of the threads that you identified here, this political and a military community that surrounds around a particular set of values in North America and Europe. And you have seen the development of it over the years from Cold War to post-Cold War era into 2000s and beyond. What would you say as sort of the central mechanism in which you think endured beyond the sort of security arrangement, but on the political and the normative side? What is the central dynamic there that kept North America and Europe together in this transatlantic community? So the United States was the democratic leader. and the values of rebuilding Europe in a democratic way 
is what united both Canada and the United States on one hand and the nations of Western Europe, because Central and Eastern Europe were still behind the Iron Curtain. That's what united them. So even though you see all this literature in the Cold War, very understandably, about the military equation of NATO, very important, NATO has always been a partnership, a synergy, where liberal constitutional democracies find common ways to articulate a national interest, international security policy, and then to build upon that a structure and a set of functions of cooperation. So it always has had a tremendous amount of latent strength. And therefore, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was no surprise at all that NATO continued, that it changed some of its focus, but that its essence remained. What else would these democracies have done? All go on their own separate individual ways and renationalize defense? That would be unthinkable, would be impractical, would be destroying decades of common perception of world problems. So there's a long line of cohesion. It's often hard to see because there's so much immediate short-term political divergence and debates and criticisms, but there is deep down political cohesion that fundamentally shapes this thing called the Atlantic community. It has benefited from a very wise treaty that doesn't try to specify too many things, but that talks in very generic ways, which carry on from threat to threat, from decade to decade. This component, the framework, the political normative framework that the treaty provides beyond your typical traditional military alliance is central in keeping the alliance moving forward and enhancing this sense of community within the transatlantic space. And if you look at the strategic concept, now we're going to have a new strategic concept being sort of formulated. The last one was over 10 years ago to deal with the upcoming challenges and reorient the alliance for the next decade. Where would you place the role of the strategic concept within NATO? What's the purpose of it? Why is it important? I see the strategic concept, and I'm not alone in this, many people do, I see it as a kind of a plans and priorities summary. So what it does is it adds to the broad principles of the treaty, the structures of military cooperation, the decision-making procedures that are on all different levels. It adds a sense of, okay, here is a set of priorities. These are the three things we do. We do collective defense. We do cooperative, we sorry, we do political crisis management, we do cooperative security. And therefore, it's interesting to remember that what is going on at the moment is an update. And literally, this is what the reflection report also mentioned an update to the strategic concept. So I think it will be hard to replace it with something entirely new. Now, of course. An update can mean very big update or a very small update, but the alliance always was, first of all, 
about collective defense, about defending democracies from military force use autocracies. That's still very relevant. In fact, the rise of the world's largest autocracy, China, is every day increasing in significance for NATO. So that will remain. I suspect that the second function, namely that of crisis management or crisis resolution, which led NATO also to many faraway places like Afghanistan, that will in practice become less. Whether NATO will actually try to write it up in a way that that function, that second function becomes more circumscribed, I'm not sure. It's hard to do because the big word in NATO is threats. So you don't want to write anything in the strategic concept that takes away a future clear recognition of a threat. But at the same time, we know that the far away democracy building projects, such as in Afghanistan and to some extent in Libya, we know that those have not worked. While the democracy building inside the Euro-Atlantic region, particularly in the Balkans, not finished, but there, there has been success. So there might be informally or formally, uh, there might be a better definition of where and what kind of crisis management NATO will do. I think you highlighted several important threads here. We would like to come back and open up a little bit, both on the sense of you know a return to emphasis on the collective defense compared to, say, the crisis management out of area operations and so on and so forth. On the one hand, how to deal with China on the other hand, and perhaps this notion of democratic resilience within the alliance and within the Euro-Atlantic area as the third important component. I want to come back to them in a minute, but for the audience, could you give us a sense of how does the alliance go about updating this strategic concept? So what's the process, the nuts and bolts of developing this new strategic concept at the most basic level? I have to laugh a little bit because that is, in fact, a gigantic question. I wrote a piece on this, and it's called How NATO's Values and Functions Influence Its Policy and Action, because how NATO does things, now with 30 nations, now over 70 years old, is in fact quite a story. And I'm just going to give you some of the very basics. NATO begins, if you can use that word, begins with national interests. NATO nations, but now 30, 30 NATO nations with national interests, some giants like the United States, some tiny like Montenegro, but national interests. Then, as we discussed up till now, those interests mix with values, with joint values of liberty, of the rule of law, of democracy. These values shape the areas where the nations may have common interests. And when they are found, including in revisiting the strategic concept, that has to be found, that has to be discovered, and that is proposed by the nations. And when the nations propose these things, they also limit them. For example, in the 
discussions of the highest political body of the alliance, the North Atlantic Council, both those interests and those limitations will be identified. Then we should see as a third piece, so the first piece was interest, the second piece values, the third piece is functions. NATO is a big, mature, complex security and defense organization, even a regime. And this big complex has key bodies in its structure, such as Defense Planning and Policy Committee, such as the Military Committee. It has an international military staff. It has an international civilian staff. It has an executive headed by the Secretary General. And these different structures then input into this mix of interests and values ways of trying to bring products and solutions out of the complexity of this. And that's how you get, for example, the idea of how to build consensus. You know, in NATO, with 30 nations, we should never think of the nations voting. They don't. Nations essentially do very little, except if they really believe they cannot go along with it, with something, and then they hold up or they stop the consensus. So the individual veto exists, but it's used very carefully and very differently. So what happens alongside all these functioning organs, we see essentially directional bargaining happening. Some nations will take the lead and they'll start bargaining and they'll start If that goes somewhere, they'll start coalition building. And if they have a big enough coalition, they'll start to put real proposals on the table and they'll start to try to persuade other allies. Here, the United States plays a critical role as well as everywhere else in the alliance, but here also, namely, the United States is the largest political persuader in NATO. There's nothing like it. The United States, not alone, but as a coalition builder, has the capacity to persuade others. Because the others also know that when it comes to the finish line, to actually doing something, it is again the United States who is the military enabler, who is the one that can get the other nations over the line into some kind of military capacity. So this is a process that can go on literally, like the strategic concept, literally for a couple of years, or it can come together very quickly as it did in Libya in 2011. Sometimes all of the pieces are engaged, such as in a strategic concept. Sometimes a few are very engaged and others sort of sit on the side like a kind of a constructive abstention. So um, it's really a fascinating, complex organizational structure. My bottom line, I think, would be that without the United States politically bargaining, politically providing the process to move forward, and tactically enabling, including militarily enabling, it's very difficult for the alliance to do big things. So that is probably one of the biggest things in its success.
I think we all agree that the United States and what it does and what it doesn't do is central in maintaining NATO as a successful alliance. But you pointed out there are, I think, room for other allies to take the lead in certain conceptual developments or areas. And when you look at the development of the new strategic concept, it's perhaps one of the sort of the times in which different allies could take the lead and engage in, in kind of a norm entrepreneurship within the alliance. Do you see a role for Canada within this? And if you do, what it should be. I mean, there are, I think, maybe two questions there. One, will Canada take a role in a, in a niche component of it? And the second one is, of course, should it take it? And if yes, what should be that particular role? I do see a role for Canada, but alas, it's a little bit of a shrinking role. And I say alas because I find is both unnecessary and unhelpful for Canada and for the Alliance. So if we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, a complete no-brainer. The alliance is very much part of Canada's international uh, struck, uh, thinking about foreign and international affairs. We very much endorse the values of NATO. We very much endorse multilateralism. And we are active in NATO. We have an enhanced forward presence we are leading in Latvia, we are involved in the Mediterranean a bit, we are involved in Southern Europe, we're involved in many pieces of NATO's rich organs and structures. But the reality is that Canada is, especially in the last three, four years, I would say, is becoming a bit of a strategic blank sheet. We don't appear to have a sense of strategic purpose that we could have as the second largest landmass in the world with soon 37 million people. We ought to have a much better strategic purpose. For example, look at the 1950s. We as Canadians and our government and military, political, diplomatic we obviously saw the need to support West Germany and France and, and the lowlands and Scandinavia and Southern Europe. That was very obvious to us. We had significant contributions. But today, look at today, our fellow democracies, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, South Korea, are under very similar threats that are building steadily. And we are strategically absent. We are strategically missing. And at the same time, our military capabilities are structurally underfunded and underfunded and underfunded, making it a real puzzle for our excellent military personnel to just keep doing what we're doing. They're always stretched. They're always stand up and come to the to rescue. But it's getting harder and harder for them because of this absence. So as a result, Canada's persuasive power in the alliance in the 50s and 60s was considerably higher than it is today. And it's approaching what I would call a bit of an alarming level where it's not for lack of helpfulness, it's not for lack of respect. Allies respect us, our Armed forces personnel among best. They are uh, deployed 
very creatively all over the place. So, you know, more than 200 people in Ukraine, more than, but they lack that political strategic rationale from the political top, and they're lacking the resources and the resource renewal and the reality of the new world becoming a very threatening place and us sitting in this great triangle between Russia, America, China, and the Arctic, the Pacific on one side, the Atlantic on the other side, it calls for a democracy like ours to be much more engaged than we are. I mean, I think this is a very, very important point, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you lay out very clearly and articulately and why Canada need to get more serious thinking about its national interests, its strategic position and direction and vision, and how, as you pointed out, that needs to be linked with our engagement with the world and providing the necessary resources to our armed forces, to our diplomats, to fulfill that direction. But that direction is, is missing. And I think NATO is one part of it, and you really highlighted the Indo-Pacific component and the need to develop a coherent approach there. We did have a, a recent episode on the Indo-Pacific and NATO, and there we talked about Netherlands and Germany and the UK and everyone else is having an Indo-Pacific strategy. We're still developing it. Hopefully, you know, today I was reading on the mandate letters. It still says not the launch, but the development of an Indo-Pacific strategy. So it looks very much complacency to me, the fact that things have been taken care of and we don't have to think for ourselves and engage in a purposeful way, identifying our interests within NATO and with other places and sufficiently providing resources for our men and women in, in uniform and, and our diplomats to pursue them. And if we don't do that, like you said, we're missing an important leverage for our pursuing our interests. If, if you're not bringing anything to the table, if all of it is talk, and but you're not engaging in action, I think that eventually harms our standing and our interest in security and prosperity. Of course, this is a very hard question to put forward, but what do you think would take for Canada to engage, at least within the NATO context, engage with NATO and shaping the future of NATO in a more purposeful manner and provide our contributions, as you point out in Eastern Europe, quite extensive, with the necessary resources for those people who are already stretched in terms of the capabilities that they are given. What would it take for the political direction to come, the, the political class to take this more seriously and not continue to be what Joel Sokolsky and Joseph Joko called being an easy rider in NATO? You know, the domestic coherence that is needed for Canada to have a clear international set of priorities, that domestic coherence is actually already beginning to form in public opinion. For instance, if you look at Canadian public opinion vis-a-vis -vis China, you can see over the last uh, six years, you can see a clear line of increasingly Canadians being concerned. But there appears to be still that gap between public opinion and the political leadership. Now, if you look at Canada and Russia, Canada has for a long time spoken in NATO fora, as well as in the G7, has spoken very clearly and very critically about Russia. Russia have, has largely 
taken that as a little thing on the side that doesn't need to take credible because Canada at the same time has tried in the Arctic region to keep relations with Russia as peaceful as possible. So you see this strange divide on the one side, Canada, certainly because we have over a million Ukrainians in our heritage, has taken strident positions vis-a-vis Ukraine and in the Baltics, it has made clear positions, but they seem to lack any Canadian domestic capacity. They rely entirely either on the alliance in general or on the United States. And that's not how you build an alliance. Alliance cannot be built from the top down. It has to be built from the bottom up, as it was in the 50s. It has to be built from democracies who see the purpose, who define the need, and set the resources. I think in Canada, currently, it is a lack of political imagination. It might be that at the highest levels, the priorities as seen are increasingly domestic priorities and domestic values and domestic policies rather than seeing the bigger international values and policies, which typically are, you know, a a couple denominators down. So if a country becomes focused by its leadership on national issues only, it has this strange divergence internationally, which is beginning to happen. I hope, like all our listeners, that it isn't a calamity, that it isn't a a sad event, that it isn't a violent event that will change our mindset. I hope it's not. I hope it can be done by strategic calculation instead. But time is running out. I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment. And I think the inward-looking political class, as you as you pointed out. It's a very myopic take on what the national interests are. And I think the assumption that things will be taken care of by others, by United States and our allies, that we don't have to worry about it, is will make us unprepared for this changing and increasingly becoming competitive and dangerous international system. I think, like you pointed out, the public is more aware of the connection between Canada's international engagement, the stability of the international order, and our contributions to it, to Canadian security and prosperity, more than the political class. And hopefully, as you pointed out, the awakening would come not because of an external shock, but with the recognition that the public here at this stage, at least, is more ahead than the political class making those um, those connections. Maybe the last question, When you look at the next decade ahead, the challenges that NATO is likely to face, internal alliance cohesion, dealing with the rise of China and how to respond to that, you know, it's a reintroduction and re-emphasis on the collective defense and the territorial defense, etc. What would you like to see in the new strategy concept, in the update there, conceptually, that would enable the alliance to think and prepare for the next 10 years? This may come across as cynical, and I don't want it just to be cynical, but if you look at the previous Atlantic strategic concepts, they usually came 
much later, they usually followed a series of developments that took place. And then finally, the Atlantic strategic concept was codified, enunciated. And your listeners should keep in mind that very often the alliance actually doesn't write its strategic concept first and then from there on knows how to act. It usually has to react to world events much faster, regardless of what's in the Atlantic strategic concept. And then eventually it writes it up. So it also may be that this will happen again. That shouldn't make us happy. It just should make us cautious about not judging the new updated strategic concept as a success or a failure, because it will not make that much difference in the short run. Also keep in mind that this strategic concept was driven very much by the outgoing Secretary General. Nothing wrong with the Secretary General. He's a fantastic Secretary General. But it isn't in the first place that there is a coalition of nations behind him or the most decisive nations behind him. In a way, the Secretary General has to generate enough nations that like what he's trying to do and that see results there. So it's even more difficult, I think, than it was in 2010. There's one vulnerability that we haven't talked about, and I just want to mention it very, very briefly and quickly because it's important also for Canada and for the Alliance, and that is the vulnerability of domestic U.S. political developments. By that, I mean the possibility, the, the threat that the United States, for political reasons, could become more unilateral remains high. And as a result of which, we as Canadians should even be more prepared to be more capable on our own since that kind of automatic multilateralism may not always be forthcoming. Europe thinks the same way. In other words, many Europeans are saying, given the U.S. vulnerability internally, we need to have more European capacity. So there I'm hoping to see, on the European side, I'm hoping to see some language that will indicate that European capacity, but I hope it's not in the form of the EU because the EU doesn't really deliver this. It ought to be in the form of European NATO members and a European pillar. If that goes well, something good can come out of this concept for the near future. Like I said, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I cannot agree more on the point that we need to think and prepare and resource sufficiently to deal with increasingly turmoil-filled world in a United States that's increasingly turning inwards, regardless of who is the president. And we might end up being in a left out in the cold if we do not develop those capabilities and act on them rather than waiting for others to do it. And the Europeans are doing hopefully the same. And hopefully within the NATO European pillar, like you pointed out, to ensure that we have the transatlantic bond remaining there while the United States either turning its gaze towards Asia Pacific, in the Pacific or inwards and dealing with domestic issues. Professor Alex Wentz, thank you very much for this insightful and informative conversation. And thank you very much for coming to Across the Pond.